Well, last week we left our hero, David, saying goodbye to his best friend, Jonathan, who just happens to be the son of the man who's trying to kill David. And if you remember, after Saul tried to pin David to a wall with his spear, David fled and went to his home and ran into the arms of his wife, Michael, who just happened to be the daughter of, this, of the man who's trying to kill him. Uh, and so uh, he, David runs away. He gets away. Michael helps him escape out of that. And, and, uh, and, and uh, when Saul sends men to their house to try to, try to capture or kill him, and he escapes and he runs to, to the city of Ramah. And while he's in Ramah, Saul discovers David's location. He, and you remember he sent out soldiers to, to arrest him or to kill him. He really didn't care which one, which one it was. Uh, but when they arrived there in Ramah in this, in this, uh, at Naoth, this kind of out-of-the-way school of the prophets being run by Samuel, uh, again, you remember, it's, it's my favorite story in all of David's life. When, when Saul sends these soldiers up and they say, you know, they walk in with their swords drawn, we're here for David, we know he's here, and the next thing they know, they're dropping their swords and prophesying over David. The Spirit of God is so strong and so powerful, they cannot... They cannot lift their hand against the man that God is going, planning to raise up as king. And so these supernatural, supernaturally protected. And those soldiers, I feel bad for them as they go back and say, well, Saul, you know, a, a funny thing happened on the way up to get David. Uh, we started prophesying over him and he got it. You know, he sent another group of soldiers the next day. And the same thing happened. They start prophesying when they show up on the scene instead of, instead of arresting David. And they come back the same story. So the third time, Saul says, listen, if you're going to kill somebody, you've got to take responsibility yourself. So he himself gets some soldiers and they head up to, to Naoth. And he gets there and he's thinking to himself, well, there's at least there's no way that I'm going to prophesy over David uh, you know, because I'm not going to fall for this. But he shows up and not only, not only does he prophesy over David, but he strips himself naked, falls on the floor, prophesies all night long, wakes up in the morning, he's lying, lying on the floor, still naked, gets up, gets dressed and goes back, goes back to Gibeah. So it was just the supernatural protection of God. Now, as I said last week, I don't understand really why David left at that point in time. Um, you know, because if, if God has taken care of you that way, there's no reason to run from that. But he, he takes off. He, he realizes, okay, Saul's, Saul knows where I am. Eventually he's going to get me and, and maybe he should have stayed. But, but anyway, he, he takes off from there and, and that's where he went down and met, met with uh, Jonathan. And, uh, and, and then last week we went through the story of that and how everything uh, took place there. And so then after that whole situation with Jonathan, where they finally say goodbye to each other, it's just this, this emotionally charged moment where these two men who are the best friends, the best friends that you can imagine, uh, and they're having to say goodbye and, and go, one going one direction, the other going the opposite way. And they finally they have to say goodbye. And after this encounter, David leaves Jonathan and he goes down to a, uh, the city of Nob. The city of Nob. Now, Nob is a priestly community. And, and so he says, he says to the, he walks up there and, and shows up in the city of Nob and it's a city full of priests. And he says to the head of that priestly community, he, he's, and, and 
again, you know, David is not perfect. He, he doesn't make the best decisions. And instead of actually telling him what's going on, he makes up a story. And he, he lies to the, to, the, to the leader of the city. He says, well, you know, I'm here because I'm on a secret mission from the king. It's kind of something you'd hear, you know, like in a movie or something. Uh, it's like the spur of the moment. It's almost, almost like he didn't even think about what he was going to say, and he has to try to figure out something at the last minute. I, I'm on a secret mission. Oh, yeah, that's the ticket. I'm on a secret mission from the king, and it's so secret and so urgent, I had to leave without any food. I have no horse, no, no weapons, nothing. How about giving me some food? David says, or the priest looks at him and says, secret mission. He says, well, where are you men? Oh, oh, the men. The, I've got men here. They're all, they're all just hiding out there in the wilderness, in the hills. You just can't see them, but they're here. And so uh, the priest says to David, he says, well, you know, the only food we actually have here is the showbread. And, uh, you know, we're not supposed to be just, that's for the priest to eat alone. And, and, and David says, would God withhold showbread from a starving soldier of Israel who's on a secret mission for the king? And the priest gives David this hallowed bread uh, off of the table of the Lord. And David says, hey, thanks. You know, I sure appreciate that bread. And he says, hey, you know, I, I don't suppose you have a weapon here, do you? Maybe a sword? And that guy speaks up and says, well, you know, actually there is a sword here. Uh, he, he says, you know, after that battle where you killed Goliath, well, somebody went out and picked up Goliath's sword and they wrapped it up and brought it here and somebody thought it ought to, ought to be stored here for the archives. We, we have Goliath's sword here. And he says to David, well, I, I guess it's yours as much as it's anybody's. And David says, there is no sword like it in all of Israel. Why? Because it's made of iron. So David takes the showbread from the priest and, and he takes the sword of Goliath. Now I want you to think about what's, what's been going on in David's life. I want you to see God in his life. First of all, he has been supernaturally protected by God at Ramah. He has now been fed supernaturally by God with the showbread from the, from the altar. And he, now he has his enemy's weapon. And he leaves there and he goes to Gath. Now, now listen, to this point in time, at least to a certain degree, David's decisions make at least a little bit of sense. It makes sense that he'd go home to find safety when Saul tried to kill him, right? That makes sense. You go to your wife, you, you try to figure out what's going on. It makes sense that he would, you know, run to the place where the prophet Samuel was living. After all, you know, he was the one that, that anointed him to be king in the first place. And, you know, I can imagine him going here to him and saying, hey, you, you got me into this mess. You should be able to get me out. You're the prophet and all. And it even, even leaving there, leaving the, the protection of the, of the Spirit in that situation, at least I can see, you know, understand why he would go to see his best friend because Jonathan may have been the only living person in a position to actually help David. He was his best friend, but he was the king's son. If anybody was going to be able to speak any sense to, to Saul... It would be Jonathan. So at least I can see that. That makes a little bit of sense. But then when he leaves Jonathan, and, and he goes to the place where the, where the Goliath's sword is being stored. All right, well, that makes sense. Got to get a weapon. The next move he made, though, at least to me, makes no, no sense at all. 
Because David leaves Nob and he goes to Gath. He leaves Ramah, he, goes to, uh, he leaves Jonathan, and he goes to Gath. Now think, who is the most famous native son uh, that was produced by Gath? Goliath. Goliath. Okay, David has killed the most famous soldier that Philistia has ever produced in public. He used his own sword to cut his head off. He rallied the Israelite uh, troops and, 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 and he gave the, the Philistines the worst defeat in the history of the nation. And now David has had to flee Goliath and he goes to Gath? It's a little bit like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, he goes to Gath, the capital of Philistia. This is where Goliath was born. It's where his brothers, uh, are, who are giants as well, still live. I'm watching, look at reading this, and I'm thinking, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I mean, I mean what did he think they were going to do? Did they think they were going to vote him mayor of Gath, you know? You, what, they were going to say, yay, David's here, the guy that killed our, our best soldier. We're so happy to see you. But David goes there and he hears the servants of King Achish kind of whispering, hey, hey, isn't that David? Hey, isn't that David? Isn't that the one that they sing about over there in Israel and, and they dance to the song where they're singing Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands? And you know what? The ten, who the tens of thousands are that they're singing about? They're the Philistines. And when he heard that, he suddenly realized this is probably not a good idea. He, he, and he was very, very afraid of Achish all of a sudden. I don't know if maybe he thought, well, they won't know who I am. I mean, again, they don't live in the day of mass media. They don't, they've never seen a picture of me. But somebody there had seen him, recognized him, knew who he was. And maybe he thought he would, could be anonymous. But he suddenly realized there is no anonymity here. They know who I am. They know what I've done. This is a bad situation. And so David, one of the things he knew, he knew that the Philistines had a superstition that where they believed that it was bad luck to kill a crazy person. Now, it's not just, not just the Philistines. It was, it was very common in the ancient world in that situation. It comes from the fact that the ancients uh, in most primitive cultures believed that insane people were touched by God, by a God, okay, uh, or by the gods in, their, in that sense. Uh, in, in fact, in Greek culture, that's where the word charisma comes from, it means to be touched or to be gifted. Uh, and, it's, and they had this belief that if somebody was crazy, it was because they had been touched by a God and it was more than the human mind could handle. And so they got crazy and, and, and they, knew, they believed that if they killed an insane person, somebody that was crazy, that, that it might anger the gods and then it could turn on them. David knew this. And so David, knowing what the Philistines believed, fakes madness. I mean, and it was totally humiliating. Here's this great young warrior, the, the, the rising star of Israel, anointed to be the next king of Israel, and he's faking insanity. He's scratching at the gate, and he's, he's foaming at the mouth, and the saliva's dribbling down into his beard. 
And he's acting like this, and they bring him before Achish. And he says, <laughs> King Achish says, get him out of here. He, he says, get him out of here. He said, don't I have enough crazy people around me already? <laughs> get him out of here. And so they drive him out of Gath into the Judean hills. Now look at where David is. David is right back where he was the night he left Gibeah. He's all alone. He has destroyed his reputation in Israel, or his reputation has been destroyed. He has destroyed his reputation in Gath. He's humiliated himself by feigning madness rather than fighting like a man and dying by the spear. You know, now all alone with nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, he staggers out into the Judean wilderness to find a place to hold up and to find the voice of God. You see, David, he's reached the end of his rope. No place else to go. Nothing else to do. And he's got to find the God that he that he knew when he was just a little boy tending sheep in the wilderness. I mean, certainly he's achieved some great things, but he's also made some disastrous decisions along the way. But, but here's what I know is, is that, is that uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I know I'm not. You, you're you're going to come to a moment in your life somewhere along the way uh, where, where you're, you get fired or you're going to get laid off or you're going to get run out or you're going to get hurt or you're going to get wounded because there are those places in life that you walk out of and then there are other places in life that you crawl out of. And when you get out there, when you get out there in the wilderness all alone with nothing and no place else to turn and nothing else that you can do, you will seek God again. Maybe, maybe you have been, but maybe, maybe you've been trying to answer, you know, figure things out yourself all along the way. But you will turn to God when you get to the wilderness and there's nothing left. So David, he goes out into the wilderness. He's out there all alone. He's going to hear from God. And, and David, he, he goes to this massive honeycomb cavern area called Adullam. And he holds up there. And uh, he, he, he begins to be sort of a desert raider. You know, he's got to scavenge for a living, basically. So, you know, he'll sneak down in the night and, and steal a horse, you know, get some food from somebody. And, and he begins to build this little one-man kingdom. You know, he's an outcast. Uh, out there on his own, but then word of this begins to reach uh, throughout the land. You know, David is in the wilderness. David, David is in the in the cave at, 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 at the cave at Adullam. And so, what happens is these outlaws start coming to, to join up with him. You know, they the, the Bible says that those who couldn't pay their taxes, those with a grievance, those that were mad at King Saul, those that had done something wrong and had to flee, they all, they all come out to David. These are not the cream of the crop guys that you want, you know, coming to be part of your band. Uh, and gradually, these, these people assemble around David until he has a personally dedicated army of 600 men. Now, and the, these are men who are loyal to David. They and their dependents live in Adullam and, and, and they sort of form this non-Israeli Israel city. 
They, they, they sort of form a new tribe in a way because they're not, they're, they're from all the different tribes from every tribe of Israel, but, but they're the outcasts. They can't go back there. So, so they become like the tribe of David. You know, they're, they, they don't really have a loyalty there anymore. They can't go there. So my loyalty is to David. So they, they sort of become their own little group, their own little, their own little tribe, so to speak. And, and their, their loyalty is to David as long as it works. As long as it's, everything's going great, then they're good and they, they're loyal to David. But when it doesn't, they're going to kill David. And we're going to see that a little bit later on in a moment when these men turn on him uh, or they start to turn on him. But these are tough, hard, dangerous men that live out in the wilderness of, of Adullam with David. And they form this sort of city-state. And from there, they begin to use that as their base and begin to raid, you know. Now listen, I want you to understand something. Especially in that, in that time period, in that region, a 600-man cavalry unit led by a great military leader is a dangerous, dangerous unit. And they raid all through the southern desert area and throughout the plains of Israel, and they become very famous. Now they don't kill any Jews. They don't raid any Jewish towns. David is not going to touch any of the Hebrew people. He, he's still loyal to the nation of Israel. But they play havoc with the Philistines. And they play havoc with, particularly with the Amalekites as, as time w- rolls on. And they grow stronger and they grow richer as they build up their strength. And David and his 600 men, they become the dominant military force in the south. So Saul is up in the north at Gibeah. And at this point in time, now at this moment, he's not coming after David right now. He's leaving him alone. But David is in the south, and he's the strong military force down there, and he's moving out from Adullam. And you know what? When you look at it, when you think about this, because Saul is, has at least taken a hiatus as far as chasing him down and hunting him down, David's got his people around him. Things are going well. They're they're gaining in wealth, they're, they're gaining in power, and it looks in that moment, it looks like maybe David has finally found some peace in his life. But you know what? The world doesn't stand still just because you're happy. Clouds roll in, hurricanes blow in, Tornadoes happen, the world keeps turning. Just because you found a place where you're happy and things to be going well seem to be going well for you doesn't mean that the world stands still and doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen again. You, you, you can't, you know, it'd be nice if we could spray our lives with hairspray and freeze it in those perfect moments. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could just freeze time right in that moment? But how how many of you know that life is, you have those moments on the mountaintop where it's the best that you've ever experienced and the joy is full and the happiness is wonderful. But how many of you know that eventually there's a valley that comes? Now, there's a reason for that. We're not going to get into that tonight. There's a reason why God takes us through valleys. It's because he's more interested in your character than your comfort. Uh, but, but that's a different message altogether. But, but you know what the reality is, is that life is not about getting it perfect. Life is about finding the sustaining grace of God, whether you're all alone in the wilderness 
or you're the hero of the nation, or you're the outlaw in the, in the cave of Adullam, or you're, or you're living in a cave, or you're the king. And while David is Adullam, uh, while he's there, the word comes to David that, that Saul has killed all the priests in the city of Nob. Let me tell you what happened. There was a man named Doeg. And he saw, when David was there with the priests, he saw the priests of Nob give David the showbread, and they, he saw them give the sword of Goliath to David, and he, he's a snitch. Um, and he goes and tells Saul. And so Saul, you know, uh, confronts Ahimelech, who, who is the leader of the, of the priest in Nob, and, and, he, and he confronts him, and he accuses him of conspiring with, with David and rebelling against King Saul. And, and Ahimelech defends himself and says, what are you talking about? Because see, Ahimelech is out in Nob. He doesn't know. Remember, there's no newsletters. There's no uh, newspaper. There's no internet. There's no news broadcast. He doesn't know that Saul has tried to kill David and David has fled. He doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is that David showed up. And as far as he knows, David's the most loyal of all of Saul's soldiers. And he tells him, he says, Saul, what are you talking about? David is more loyal than anybody else in your family, in your whole uh, army. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I have done nothing wrong. I've just fed your soldier, your general. But Saul doesn't believe him. And he looks at him and he says, you're going to die today, Ahimelech, along with all your family. And then Saul orders the soldiers to kill all the priests. But they refuse. At least they had some sense there. They all refuse. They say, we are not going to raise up our hands to strike the priests of, of, of the God of Israel. We've seen enough to know that's a bad idea. In other words, they said, Saul, you're the king, and we are afraid of you, but we're way more afraid of God. So, no. So, Saul turns to Doeg. Now, what, what I didn't tell you before, Doeg, while he was there in the city of Nob, he was not an Israelite. He was an Edomite. He didn't, he didn't care about the nation of Israel. He didn't care about the God of Israel. And he turns, to, uh, Saul turns to Doeg, and he said, Doeg, you do it. And Doeg killed 85 priests that day. But, you know, that wasn't enough for him. He was bloodthirsty. He didn't stop there. He also killed every man, woman, child, and infant in the city of Nob. But he didn't even stop there. Then he killed all the cattle, donkeys, and sheep that were in the city. And in one day, Doeg wiped out an entire city of priests and their families. But in that tumult, because you can imagine with that kind of carnage taking place that there was probably, you can imagine all of the... Uh, the tumult that would be taking place and people running here and there and the screams and the noise and all of this stuff. Well, in, in the middle of all that, Abiathar, who was the son of Ahimelech, and remember, Ahimelech's the leader of the city. His son, Abiathar, is the only one out of the city that we know of, at least Scripture presents, uh, and is the only one that escapes. And he runs and he flees to join David and, and he tells David what has happened. Now, now, the interesting thing is, we're going to get to Abiathar again later on in David's story because this man, Abiathar, in the end of David's story, 
Uh, you don't see it now. You don't know it now. But Abiathar is later going to be part of the conspiracy at the end of David's life to try to end his reign. And at this moment, though, he comes to David and says, Saul has wiped out this city, all the priestly clan. I alone am left. Now, how many of you ever heard the saying, there's somebody, maybe you heard something like this. There's an old saying that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You ever heard that? Well, I can tell you this, that is a frail friendship. Deep in his heart, I believe that Abiathar harbors resentment towards David. And I, I believe that's why later on he was part of the rebellion. I believe that in his heart, he's, he's thinking if David had just not gone there, if David had not taken the showbread, if David had not taken the sword of Goliath, if David had not done those things, then his father would still be alive and the city would be just fine. And I think he harbors that resentment in his heart and he, and he bides his time, he holds that inside and he, and he goes to David and works with David his whole life. But I believe deep in his heart he harbors that resentment and he just sort of lays low and he bides his time until David is on his deathbed, a sick old man, and he says, now this is my moment. This is my chance to get back at him. So I just want to, I want to remind you it's kind of a negative teaching, but I want you to hear this. People can come into your life that will work with you and be loyal to you in many ways. But if they harbor resentment against you deep in their hearts at a, at a weak moment in your life, they may be the very one that will cut your throat. So this guy becomes part of David's camp and now he has a priest in the midst. So he has a city. He has an army. He's got a priest. The fame of the army just continues to grow. And, and, and there's a town not very far from Adullam called Keilah. And this town uh, came under siege by the Philistines. Now, you know what a siege is. I'll make sure we all understand because it, it's, not, it, it's not necessarily an all-out attack, but but oftentimes cities would have defenses around there and they would, an army would lay siege. And what that means is that they would surround it and they would not let any supplies in or out. And so they would basically starve the city out. If they couldn't take it by force, it was a lot less costly in their manpower to just cut it off from, from all the rest of the world and starve them out and they could take the city that way. And so this city is under siege by the Philistine army. They're attacking them. And David hears this. They send a runner to David and say, can you help us? Please help us. And, and so David takes his 600-man army, rides over to Keilah, and he saves the town. He's the hero, and, and, and they, they save the whole town, and they all celebrate together. You can imagine the celebration that took place in the town that night. Well, David finds out, that, or excuse me, Saul finds out that David is in the city of Keilah. And he sets out a trap. To, uh, sets out to trap him inside those city walls to, and to destroy him. So Saul, he, he brings an army from Gibeah to Keilah. But before he's, that sounded kind of funny, to Keilah. I'm sorry, as again, once I get, I get distracted once in a while. Uh, Saul is on his way to this city of Keilah. <laughs> and... Uh, 
And on his way, you, you know, they don't travel. It's not like they get there, you know, they roll up on him at 60 miles an hour. It's a slow march. It's a, it takes time to get your army there in those days. Well, word gets to the city before Saul does. And so David takes his 600 men and they, they go on the run, running from place to place. And, and Saul, in this moment, launches an all-out effort to, to find David. Now, I want you to remember the situation, where Israel was, what Saul was doing. He was in the process of establishing the, the nation of Israel and pushing the enemies of Israel out. And so he's constantly at war with the Philistines and other uh, groups of people. Uh, he, he's at war with them. He's at war. You know, if he's not fighting them, he's fighting the Amalekites. If he's not fighting them, I mean, there's always this war going on. And he pulls his soldiers out of the war with the Philistines, which is what God was trying to establish the nation of Israel. He was doing the work of God by doing that. And he pulls his soldiers out of there and puts them into a hunt for David, who is not harming him. Who is not attacking him. Here's, that's another great lesson for us. If you get distracted by egotistical issues. You can lose sight of your purpose and your destiny. Saul is trying to build a nation from these Jewish tribes. As I said he's at war with at least Two or three major pagan nations, you know, the Philistines, the, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the, the, the Hittites, all of these people surrounding. He's at war on every hand and he pulls all of his troops out of fighting those battles. He, now, remember, he's been beating them. He's been winning this war. He's been pushing them back. But instead of moving forward with what's good for the nation, he pulls them out and says, I'm going to do what I think is good for me and, and for my son because he wanted Jonathan to be king. And he pulls the armies out and sends them in the desert to, to chase a flea. It's nothing but ego and pride. It's fear of David taking his throne away from Jonathan. He begins to chase David all over the place. And I, there are at least there are two scenes that I want to point out to you tonight before, we, before we're done. Uh, and, and there's two moments that, that are pivotal. They're very important and, and really point to the character of David. Most people who teach Bible studies don't tell one of them, at least in fullness, because it's a little awkward. But there, there, there's the one where Saul is sleeping. And uh, David sneaks down into the camp at night. I mean, this is the stuff that movies are made of. I mean, you could just picture this, this scene in your mind, you know, on a movie set somewhere. Uh, it's just brilliant stuff. David uh, sneaks down into the camp, you know, like a like a like a ninja, sneaks down in there and he steals Saul's water bottle. And, and Saul's spear is stuck in the ground right next to his head and he, he steals his water bottle, steals his, his sword, his, excuse me, his spear, and, and he takes the water bottle and the spear and he goes back up onto the hillside overlooking Saul's camp and he waits for the sun to come up. And in the morning when, when the camp is waking up, David stands up on the hillside, he's He's safely out of, out of reach of anybody there. And he stands up on the hillside and he starts to yell down at Abner. That's Saul's general. And he, and he accuses him. He says, hey, Abner, you should be ashamed of yourself. You, you ought to be court-martialed. You should be brought up on charges. Maybe you ought to be executed because you did not do your duty. You did not protect the king. 
And Abner, you know, he's this proud general. He says, who are you to accuse me? David says, I had the power of the king's life in my hands last night, and you were asleep. And Abner, he was from Missouri. He said, show me. And David throws the water bottle down at Abner's feet and throws the spear high up in the ground. It lands at Abner's feet. And King Saul realizes David could have killed him that night. And he says, oh, David, I'm so sorry. David, you're such a wonderful person. I, I, I'm wrong to come out here. Please forgive me. I'll take my army and go home. I see now that you are a righteous man. Listen, pay attention to this lesson because here's, here's another negative lesson. People who are driven by he, ego, people are, that are driven by emotion are as undependable in their repentance as they are in their commitments. You need to learn this. When somebody treats you mean out of ego and pride, when they're driven by their emotion and their lives are storm-tossed, and they're saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, in that moment when you do something kind to them, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, they're still acting out of the emotion of the moment. Have, they have not dealt with the issues of their heart. And we need to learn this great lesson because we don't want to uh, cast our life into the hands of people that are driven by ego and pride and emotion. Saul, Saul falls on the ground and he has this over-the-top emotional experience. He, he rends his garments. Oh, David, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Listen, uh, listen. Be just a word of caution. Be cautious around people who are regularly over-the-top in their emotions. Watch out for that. Because... In the moment where they're, they're on top of the mountain and, they're, and, they're, and everything is great and they love you dearly, they can swing around the other side. So just be careful. Over the top, out of, the, out of control emotions indicate a level of immaturity and undependability. It's okay. So Saul, he takes his army and leaves. He goes back to Gibeah and says, you know, I hate David, so I'm going to go back out and get him again. You know, that's what I'm saying. In the emotion of the moment, he says, oh, I'm so sorry. But then when the emotion dies off, he gets back to what's wrong in his heart. And he says, I got to kill that guy. So they're out there. And the, the other situation that was similar to this that people don't talk about fully, at least, because it's awkward but we're all grown-ups, so here it is. At one point in time, the army is getting close to David. And David sneaks into this little cave. And he hides way in the very back part of it. And, and, uh, and if, you, if, you look, if you look at the terrain of Israel, it's, it's just like there's this, part, this area. It looks like somebody took a giant shotgun and just shot a blasted into the side. It's just pockmarked with these caves all over the place. And so the, the army of Saul comes close to David. David and his men crawl back into one of these caves and hides in the dark. Saul doesn't know that they're there. They don't know that they're that close. And, and, and Saul co comes into the cave in that moment. He comes all alone to take care of business. Are we on the same page here? He's going to take care of business. Are we all communicating here? You know, I mean, when you're out in the middle of the desert and you're the king... 
You don't want to just squat down behind a camel. You're going to have find some privacy somewhere, right? So in order to do that, he takes his outer robe off and, you know, just throws it over rocks that are inside the cave there. And, and David is behind those rocks. And Saul is over there taking care of business. And he finishes up and he grabs his robe and goes out. You know, when you're in the cave taking care of business, you don't pick up your robe and check it to make sure everything's okay. But he, he goes out and David comes out after him. And inside the cave, what had been happening was, was David's men were, were whispering. You know, I, can, I can just picture David saying, shh, shh. But they're saying, this is it, David. You got him. He is as vulnerable as he'll ever be. Now's the chance for you to take him out and you don't have to worry about it and you know we're all behind you. You'll be the king. But David said, not going to do it. So David comes out after Saul had gone out of there and he holds up this swatch of material that he had cut off of Saul's coat when it was hanging over that rock. And he says, Saul, here's the proof that I am not out to harm you. If I was out to harm you, I could have done it very, very easily in that cave. And you know it because here is the, look at your robe, Saul. There's a piece missing and I guarantee you it's this shape. And he says, I could have killed you. Here's the proof. Saul, I am loyal to you. He's constantly trying to prove that he's not trying to do anything. What does Saul say? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, David, what's the matter with me? Please forgive me. Same story. Same song, second verse. And Saul leaves and goes back to Gibeah once again. And I want to I close with this lesson from, from David. And this is, this is a powerful lesson that's very hard for us, especially as Americans, I think, to really get. Just because someone is out to get you does not mean you have the right to retaliate. If anybody had the right to retaliate, it certainly would have been David. Don't you think? He could have easily justified it, said, I'm not going to have any peace. This guy... You know, not only has he tried to, you know, pin me to a wall with a spear twice, he's hunted me down, he's, he's tried to kill me multiple times, he's come out with, with garrisons of soldiers hunting me to kill me more than once, and, and you know, the, the, I have done nothing but, but try to be good to him, it's over, I'm justified in doing this, I'm going to take him out. But David recognized that it would be sinful to attack the man that God had put in charge. He said, he said, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. Here's what he meant by that, because there was a question about that last week, and I was thinking about that and reading more about that. What he said was, God anointed Saul, you as, as King Saul, and God's going to be the one that's going to take you down, not me. And he said, I'm not going to do it. He refuses to stretch out his hand against Saul, even though he knows that this man is not going to be satisfied until David is destroyed. But just because someone else is acting sinfully and hurtfully toward you does not give you the right to act sinfully and hurtfully toward them. First uh, Samuel 24, 12 says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. He's saying, 
He's saying, I believe God will take vengeance on you if that's what needs to happen, Saul. God will take care of it, but I'm not going to take it into my own hands. And that's the principle that even Paul taught. Uh, and it's, it's throughout, throughout the Scripture and in the New Testament where, where God says, he said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And, and you know, I know what you, you're, if you're like me, you read that and you say, but I just want to be used by God. So, Lord, vengeance is yours, but use me. Use me, Lord, in this moment. And that's a hard thing. When you have the opportunity to retaliate and you choose not to, then you are honoring God. That's the way that God says that we're supposed to live. That's a hard thing to do. Now, I also wanted to take it a step further because he says, vengeance is mine. That means when I step into the vengeance game, that I'm trying to take over God's work. I'm, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's, that's not someplace I want to go. That's a scary situation to be in, to say, okay, now I'm going to act like God. Because when you take vengeance, that's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm going to take God's work into my hands. I'm going to act like God. I'm going to offer, I'm going to offer up vengeance. The fact that someone else is doing you wrong does not give you the license to do wrong. You know, here's the thing. And this is what we have to remember. When, I mean, has anybody here been wronged before? Of course you have. If you haven't, you know, then you're probably just a super nice person that's extremely naive and you just didn't know it, you know. But we've all been wronged. And we've all had the opportunity to retaliate. And if you're like me, some of those opportunities you have taken. Am I right? But here's what I have to remember in that moment. When I want to re retaliate and I have the means to retaliate, I have to remember I will answer for my actions. They will answer for theirs. And I have to leave it in the hands of the Lord. See, Jesus said, he said to love your enemy. Which means he takes it even a step further. He's saying, listen, not only are you not to take vengeance, you're not to retaliate. And this is in the same passage there if you look it up in Romans. He says, not only are you not to do that, but he says, instead, I want you to love them. Now, now that's impossible to do if we think love is an emotion. Because how many of you can make an emotion arise in your heart right now? You know, emotions just are. You, you, don't, you, you, you can control how you express them, but, you know, when somebody does something and anger arises in your heart, it's not like you made a decision and say, hey, they did this. I'm going to get angry now. Right? You know, you don't, you don't have control. You can't turn your emotions on or off. What you can control is what you do with your emotions. Right? <laughs> you can. <laughs> you may not know it, may not believe that yet, but yes, you can. That's one of the gifts of the, or the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You can control what you do with your emotions. But, but, but if you believe that love is nothing more than an emotion, then when, when, when Jesus says, love your enemy, 
then you're, you're going to be befuddled because you're going to say, how in the world do I, do I make myself feel the butterflies in the, my stomach for my enemy? But love is not an emotion. I mean, it, we have an emotion that we call love, but, but love is more than that. Love is an action. Love is the, the action that we take. Love is a verb. Love is, is something that I have to do, not something that I feel. And so when he says, love your enemy, that means that when they do something and everything in me says, he punched me in the nose, I'm going to punch him right back in the nose. And instead, what Jesus says is, says, don't punch him in the nose, give him a peanut butter sandwich. I don't know what peanut butter sandwich, but I mean, he says, serve them, do something for them, love them, find a way to, to express love to them, find a way to show them the love of Christ in that moment. In Romans, it says, when you do that, you heap coals of fire on their head. Uh, and and well, I think what re- that really means is, is that, uh, uh, that it allows the Holy Spirit to begin to burn in their conscience. Um, now, some of them, it's just going to make them that much more cranky. You know, that's just reality. But, but that's, the, that's what, it, what, what the, the Scripture teaches us in that moment. When there's somebody trying to pin you to the wall, not only are you called not to retaliate, you don't get to pull the spear out of the wall and throw it back at them, but instead you take the spear out and you shine it up for them and say, here, is there anything else I can do for you? And I'm here to tell you, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, that is not going to happen. Because that's not something that I muster up in myself and say, I'm going to be strong and do this. This is the moment where I need the power of the Spirit, where I say, Lord, I want to do this. Help me to love them. And he gives me the love of God. The Bible says that the love of of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God lives inside of us. And the Spirit of God can activate that. And we can begin under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, begin to serve the people who are trying to destroy us. And in so doing, our very lives serve as a, as a testimony declaring the greatness of the grace of God. Now, they may never respond to it. They may hate you all the more. But you know what? They may see Jesus in you and their lives could turn around. But either way, we have no choice. See, the question comes down to this. Am I willing to surrender what I believe to be my right to retaliate? Because as a follower of Jesus, the reality is I have no rights. Because he's the king. I've surrendered everything to him. He owns it all. If he owns it all, that means he owns my rights. So if I have a right to retaliate, he's got it. So that's why vengeance is his. It belongs to him. Here's what I know to be truth. You could very well live to regret the moment of retaliation. But you will never regret forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, we have to do a whole teaching on another time about what forgiveness is because we, we don't understand it, especially in American culture. You know, we say, 
when we go to somebody and say, man, I'm so sorry, what do we do? We say, that's all right. That's not forgiveness. That's not what God, when you went to God and said, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner, please forgive me. He didn't say, oh, that's all right. He said, you're right. You are a sinner and your sin cost my son his life. But because he gave it for you, I now choose to forgive you because the price has been paid. And forgiveness is not saying that's okay. Forgiveness is because if it's okay, why is there any need for forgiveness? Forgiveness is saying that was wrong, that was hurtful, caused pain and suffering in my life. But because I have found the grace that is in Christ, that has now been given to me, I can choose to function in the grace and I can choose to forgive the way God chose to forgive me. You'll never regret forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it. In fact, when you forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, that is one of the moments in life when you are most like Jesus. Because he forgave me when I didn't deserve it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your grace.